The Law School of America. Contract law regulates the obligations established by agreement, whether express or implied, between private parties in the United States. The law of contracts varies from state to state. There is nationwide federal contract law in certain areas, such as contracts entered into pursuant to federal reclamation law. The law governing transactions involving the sale of goods has become highly standardized nationwide through widespread adoption of the Uniform Commercial Code. There remains significant diversity in the interpretation of other kinds of contracts, depending upon the extent to which a given state has codified its common law of contracts or adopted portions of the restatement, second, of contracts. Formation A contract is an agreement between two or more parties creating reciprocal obligations enforceable at law. The elements of a contract are mutual consent, offer and acceptance, consideration, and legal purpose. Agreement Mutual consent, also known as ratification and meeting of the minds, is typically established through the process of offer and acceptance. However, contracts can also be implied in fact as discussed below. At common law, the terms of a purported acceptance must be the mirror image of the terms of the offer. Any variation thereof constitutes a counteroffer. An offer is a display of willingness by a promiser to be legally bound by terms they specify, made in a way that would lead a reasonable person in the promise's position to understand that an acceptance is being sought and, if made, results in an enforceable contract. Ordinarily, an offerer is permitted to revoke their offer at any time prior to a valid acceptance. This is partially due to the maxim that an offerer is the master of his offer. In the case of options, the general rule stated above applies even when the offerer promises to hold the offer open for a certain period of time. For example, Alice says to Bob, I'll sell you my watch for $10, and you can have a week to decide. Alice is free to revoke her offer during the week, as long as Bob has not accepted the offer. However, if the offeree gives some separate consideration, discuss below, to keep the offer open for a certain period of time, the offerer is not permitted to revoke during that period. For example, Alice offers to sell Bob her watch for $10. Bob gives Alice $1 to keep the offer open for a week. Alice is not permitted to revoke during the week. A counteroffer is a new offer that varies the terms of the original offer. Therefore, it is simultaneously a rejection of the original offer. For example, Alan says to Betty, I'll sell you my watch for $10. At this point Betty has the power of acceptance. But Betty responds, I'll only pay $8. Betty's response is a rejection of Alan's offer but gives Alan a new power of acceptance. It is possible to phrase what appears to be a counteroffer so that it does not destroy the original power of acceptance. For example, Alan says to Betty, I'll sell you my watch for $10. Betty responds, I wonder whether you would take $8. Betty retains her original power of acceptance, unless Alan revokes, but she does not give Alan a new power of acceptance, as she is not making an offer of her own. Therefore, she is not making a counteroffer either. As such, mere inquiries are not counteroffers. An acceptance is an agreement, by express act or implied from conduct, to the terms of an offer, including the prescribed manner of acceptance, so that an enforceable contract is formed. In what is known as a battle of the forms, when the process of offer and acceptance is not followed, it is still possible to have an enforceable contract, as mentioned above with respect to contracts implied in fact. Uniform Commercial Code The Uniform Commercial Code, UCC, dispenses with the mirror image rule in Section 2-207. UCC Section 2-207-1 provides that a definite and seasonable expression of acceptance, 
operates as an acceptance, even though it varies the terms of the original offer. Such an expression is typically interpreted as an acceptance when it purports to accept and agrees on the following terms of the original offer, subject matter, quantity, and price. However, such an expression is not interpreted as an acceptance if it is expressly conditional on the original offerer's assent to the very terms, discussed below. This language is known as the proviso. When the proviso is not used, the terms of the contract are determined by subsection 2. When the proviso is used, but there is no assent by the original offerer to the offeree's very terms, yet the parties go ahead and perform, act like they have a contract, hence a contract implied in fact, the terms of the contract are determined by subsection 3. So, the terms of a contract under 2 to 207 are never determined by a combination of subsections 2 and 3. UCC section 2 to 207 2 of the statute tells what to do with additional terms. It does not explicitly address what to do with different terms. A minority of states, led by California, infer that this was a typographical error by the drafters. As such, those states treat different terms in the same manner as additional terms. The majority rule, however, is that different terms do not become part of the contract, rather, both of the conflicting terms, from both parties, are removed from the contract. This is known as the knockout rule. Any gaps resulting from the removal of these terms are filled by Article 2's gap fillers. A term in a purported acceptance is different if it directly contradicts the subject matter of a term present in the original offer. A term in a purported acceptance is additional if it contemplates a subject matter not present at all in the original offer. As already mentioned, subsection 2 does tell what to do with additional terms. They do not become part of the contract if either party is not a merchant. A merchant is defined elsewhere in the UCC as a party that regularly deals in goods of the kind or otherwise gives an impression of knowledge or skill regarding the subject matter of the transaction. If both parties are merchants, then additional terms in a purported acceptance do become part of the contract unless any of three exceptions apply. The exceptions are, out of order, objection by the original offerer in advance, objection by the original offerer within a reasonable time after notice, and material alteration of the contract. The third exception, whether the additional terms materially alter the contract, is the most difficult to apply. Typically, to show it, the merchant must be subjected to undue hardship and or surprise as a result of the very term, as measured by the industry involved. It is well established that disclaimer of warranty, indemnification, and arbitration are all clauses that do constitute material alterations. UCC section 2 to 2073 only applies when the proviso language from subsection 1 is used. When the proviso is used, there is no contract formed at that time unless the original offerer assents to the terms that the party purporting to accept has made expressly conditional. For example, a buyer sends a purchase order with its own terms. The seller sends an acknowledgement with additional and or different terms and uses the proviso. The buyer must accept the seller's additional and or different terms, or else no contract is formed at that time. Now a word from our sponsor, the Law School of America. Frequently, however, the buyer in such a situation does not accept the seller's terms, typically through silence, that is, not signing and returning the form to the seller. Subsection 3 is designed to deal with this situation. When the parties begin to perform the contract, they form a contract implied in fact. The terms of that contract are determined by this subsection. They consist of those terms both forms agree on. Any pertinent terms upon the forms do not agree are not part of the contract but instead are supplied by the code's gap fillers. 
Note that whether the parties are merchants is irrelevant for this subsection. However, private parties do not typically send and receive purchase orders or invoices, so in hypotheticals, the parties typically are merchants. For example, the Brown Company, buyer, sends a purchase order to the Smith Company, seller, for 100 widgets. Brown's terms are silent as to arbitration. Smith sends an acknowledgement, making its acceptance of Brown's offer expressly conditional on Brown's assent to Smith's additional term that any dispute arising from the transaction be resolved by arbitration. Brown does not sign and return Smith's form, but Smith goes ahead and fulfills the order. Brown receives the widgets and pays for them. The forms do not agree as to the term of arbitration. Therefore, if a dispute arises, the arbitration clause is not part of the contract. Instead, a UCC gap-filling provision is used. Since the code does not supply arbitration, Brown is able to avoid Smith's term and bring an action in court. Examples Laidlaw v. Organ, 1817, the seller of tobacco was not entitled to get out of a contract to sell a load at a low price when it transpired that the War of 1812 had ended, and so that prices would rise, because a Navy embargo was lifted. Even though the buyer stayed silent about the peace treaty that had just been agreed when he was asked if prices might rise, he was entitled to enforce the contract. Pondo v. Fernandez, 1984, it was held that it was not impossible to prove that a boy had agreed with the winner of $2.8 million in a lottery that she would share the winnings with him. Pro CD Incorporated v. Zeidenberg, 1996, the click of a button accepting a license's terms on software counts as agreement. Spect v. Netscape, 2002, simply clicking a download button does not indicate agreement to the terms of a contract if those terms were not conspicuous. Satius v. Woods, 1804, a contract was binding despite making a mistake. Consideration and estoppel. Consideration is something of value given by a promisor to a promisee in exchange for something of value given by a promisee to a promisor. Typical examples of things of value are acts, forbearances, and or promises to do so. The latter refers to those things that a party has a legal privilege to do in the first place. So, promising to refrain from committing a tort or crime is not a thing of value for purposes of consideration. This is known as the bargain theory of consideration and requires that the promises to exchange the things be reciprocally induced. This is especially important for the discussion of past consideration, below. Consideration must be sufficient, but courts do not weigh the adequacy of consideration, partially because in a capitalistic society private parties are entitled and expected to determine the value of things for themselves. In other words, the things being exchanged must have some value in the eyes of the law, but the general rule is that courts do not care how much. Love and affection, for example, would not constitute sufficient consideration, but a penny would. However, sufficient consideration that is grossly inadequate may be deemed unconscionable, discussed below. Moreover, Things that ordinarily constitute sufficient consideration may be deemed insufficient when they are being exchanged for fungible things. For example, $1 is ordinarily sufficient consideration, and $100 is ordinarily sufficient consideration. However, if Alan and Betty agreed to exchange $1 for $100, it would not be an enforceable contract for lack of consideration. An exception to this exception is when there is special significance to the $1 bill itself, such as if it was the first dollar a person made in business and carries tremendous sentimental value, similar to the peppercorn rule. Fungible things do not have to be money, though. They can be grain stored in a silo, for example. 
One bushel of grain being exchanged for 100 bushels of the same grain would not be sufficient consideration. Past acts cannot constitute consideration. For example, an employer lays off an employee but promises to give him a pension in exchange for his long and faithful service to the company. It is impossible for the employee to presently promise to have worked all those years for the pension. He worked for the paychecks that the company promised in the past, not knowing whether a pension lay in the future. He might have hoped to one day receive a pension, but the company did not promise one until his layoff. Note, in this situation, the employee may be able to prevail on a claim of promissory restitution, but there is no contract for lack of consideration. Promissory estoppel is a separate cause of action to breach of contract, requiring separate elements to be shown. It has the effect that in many contract-like situations, the requirement of consideration need not be present. The elements of promissory estoppel are an express or implied promise, detrimental reliance by the promisee foreseeable to a reasonable person in the promisor's position, actual detrimental reliance by the promisee, worsening of their position, and for specific performance, as opposed to reliance damages, injustice can only be avoided by enforcing the promise. Examples Angel v. Murray, 1974, modification of a contract does not require consideration if the change is made in good faith and agreed by both parties. Hamer v. Sidway, 1891, promising to not behave antisocially amounted to valid consideration for a contract, in this case payment of money by an uncle to a nephew to not swear, drink, gamble and smoke. Kirksey v. Kirksey, 1845, an old case holding that it was not sufficient consideration to promise to visit a person in return for getting a house. Ligenfelder v. Wainwright Brewing Company, 1891, promising not to sue did not amount to valid consideration. McMichael v. Price, 1936, mutuality of obligation, and an illusory promise. It was not illusory to promise to buy all sand from one supplier, even though there was no contractual obligation to buy any sand at all. This meant there was sufficient mutuality of obligation. Would v. Lucy, Lady Duff Gordon, 1917, it was sufficient consideration to promise to represent someone's interests. Salisbury v. Northwestern Bell Telephone Company, 1974, Charitable Subscriptions. The Law School of America. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America